0: You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll be reading this evening from Malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 and malachi 2 1 through 9 <clears throat> and now o priests this command is for you if you will not listen if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name says the lord of hosts then i will send the curse upon you and i will curse your blessings indeed i have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart behold i will rebuke your offspring And spread dung on your faces, and dung on your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips he walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is a messenger of the lord of hosts but you have turned aside from my way from the way you have caused many to stumble by your instruction you have corrupted the covenant of levi says the lord of hosts and so i make you a despised and abased of all, before all people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Trey. I'm a church planting resident here at Mercy View. I'm excited to have the chance to uh, just look at God's word as we walk through the book of Malachi together. Um, So tonight, if you have your Bibles, do keep them open there to Malachi chapter 2. That's where we're going to really camp out and spend Our time this evening. Um, I always find it really interesting how the Lord seems to ordain the different seasons that the church is in uh, as we are planning out sermon series. Uh, For my part, I I was assigned this text back in January of this year. Um, It was probably planned out a little bit before that um, and and though that was set for this date, um, I don't know that what we just witnessed with the partner dedication was really set for tonight. It was probably in flux still Um, And and I find it to be something that is is really neat that we get to witness this this evening and then dive into this text. Um, Because these things might coincide tonight, but it's no coincidence that they do. Tonight, several of you made a commitment to covenant with Mercy View and become partners, and many others have done the same in years past. but, But a major part of The partnership covenant, in fact, the first part, if you read the the covenant itself, uh, in the commitments is from the elders to the partners. That's what we just witnessed a moment ago. And as we see that, the first sentence in the partnership covenant um, reads as this. It says, the shepherds and overseers of a local church, elders are entrusted with protecting, leading, equipping, and caring for the church body and her individual partners. And then it's followed by these 12 specific commitments that we just read a few moments ago, drawn out from the scriptures. And these serve as guardrails. They serve as signposts for us as the church. It it gives the elders the parameters of their ministry, and it it gives us as partners the ability to see um, when uh, things are going well and look and know when we're being led well. And it also gives us the ability to see if things begin to go off the rails a bit. Another thing to notice is that that we're using this language of covenant. A covenant is an agreement that is bringing about a relationship between two parties. And as partners, we commit to each other and we commit to uh, the elders and to the local church and, and, and to Christ, and then the elders commit to us and they commit to Christ. And so here's why I think this is so crazy that we get to look at this text tonight and we get to consider this on a night that we just saw publicly. This commitment of elders to partners and partners to the church and to Christ. Because tonight's text provides us a case study and what it looks like for leaders to break their covenant commitment. We see how God views the kind of covenantal breach that takes place in this text. And, and and we get a picture of how the people eventually begin to respond to their leaders in ministry if they persist in unrepentance. And, and I think it's great we get to look at this because one, we get to see and be grateful by the fact that that's not us tonight. That we get to walk under and, and be shepherded by some some great men and then a couple more coming on here in the next month. But we also get to see and, and get a picture of what it's supposed to look like, as well as what it looks like when this goes bad and how God responds to that and the kind of hope that we can have in that. And this is what we see about the priest in Malachi's day. They had failed wholesale to honor God and to keep covenant faithfulness with him and the people. And of all the people of Israel prone to wander as the entire nation was, the priest, honestly should have been the people who were least likely to wander from the covenant. And they're right here in the midst of the people walking away from their faithfulness to God. As we see here in a moment, they, they neglected their covenant commitment to God and the people, and the Lord is not silent, the Lord takes notice. And so with all that in mind, here's the question I think the text brings to bear on us tonight. The thing that that we need to answer as we walk through this and as we think about this series we're in about God and the promises he's made and that he is the God of the promise. And that's this, when those who have been entrusted to lead God's people abuse that trust, what do we do? What do we do when, through abuse of power, or maybe sexual immorality, or abusive behavior, or monetary misappropriation, or or covering up other failures, spiritual leaders shipwreck their faith? Whether it's the failure of an elder, or another ministry leader, or maybe a person that we've gleaned much from over the years that, that has really just caused a mess of their life, where do we turn? What do we do if we've been caught up in the collateral damage of somebody's ministry failure or scandal? Ultimately, where can we turn for comfort, for help, for healing, for justice, and for hope? And so tonight, as we look at our text, and as we dig into Malachi 2, there's three things that I think we see from here that that would answer these questions. First, we need to see what God's design for spiritual leadership actually is. And this will give us confidence that those who are leading us and and, and, and are guiding us are doing so in a way that honors God and it'll help us spot if things begin to go off the rails or when they have. The second thing we need to see is, is God's response to faithlessness in leaders. And I think this point really matters because God isn't silent. He isn't distant. He holds those who abuse their position and power accountable. And the last thing we need to see tonight is that our hope ultimately isn't in any leader here on earth, but it is in a true and better leader. It's in a true and better priest because in some way, every earthly leader will fail us. But there's one who never will. And so with that in mind, I want us to to start looking here in the middle of the text tonight, actually, in verse 4. And and the first thing we need to see is what is God's design for spiritual leaders. And so if you have your Bibles open, look with me there at verse 4. God says through Malachi, So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from their iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he's the messenger of the Lord of hosts." You see, when God called the people of Israel out of Egypt, he established the Mosaic Covenant with them, and each tribe in that covenant got an allotment of land. But in Deuteronomy chapter 10, there's this little parenthetical statement that we read about the Levites, and it says this. It says that, therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance. He is his portion. And if you remember from last week, Chapter 1 of Malachi ends with God bringing this rebuke against the people for having brought polluted offerings as their sacrifice. Instead of the first fruits, the best portion of what they had, he doesn't actually, they're bringing the leftovers. They're bringing blemished sacrifices, and they're bringing those to God to be offered. And God has been emphatically clear throughout the law What he requires is they bring the best portion to him. And I think Ryan did a great job last week of unpacking for us what's actually going on here. It's not that God's sitting up in heaven going, man, tonight I really want some filet. So if you could bring that ox and slaughter that and then bring that up to me, that's gonna be great. God doesn't care about the blood of bulls and goats. He has no need for them. What God cares about is the heart of his people. And what the bulls and the goats and the turtle doves and all of the spices and all of these things that they would bring and offer to the Lord represented was their livelihood. It represented the things that they wanted and the things that they desired. And God is saying, what I want from my people is for you to want me, want me above everything else. I need to have your heart. And if I have your heart, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you the things that you need. You will not lack And so what we see is that even after years in exile and being restored because they had broken covenant faithfulness, the people of God are back at it again because their hearts are drawn away. And so what God has done is really set the priest up for success. Like they really should have been set up for success because he doesn't give them an inheritance. He doesn't give them land. He doesn't give them stuff that their hearts can go after. He says, I will be your inheritance. I will be your portion. And still, their hearts are drawn away. They don't see God as he's meant to be seen. This covenant with them is to be their portion, and in so doing, they reap the benefits of life and peace so long as they live in the fear of the Lord, as long as they have this reverence and awe bringing glory to his name before their own. And what we're going to see in a moment is that this went off the rails. And the focus of their awe and their reverence, it turned to something that was less than awesome. Before we do that, we we need to look at what was God's intent for them as leaders? What were the priests supposed to be doing that they failed to do that they weren't doing? And so if we look there in verse six, we begin to see what God had called the leaders to do, what his covenant with Levi had established for spiritual leaders. It's very similar to the things that we read a few moments ago that Brad read as he was reading the commitments of the elders. The first thing we see here in verse six is that God's design for spiritual leaders is that they live with integrity. If we look at the verse, we see that a spiritual leader that that God would desire is one who is honest. Honest who's a peacemaker, who's above reproach, who leads the people away from sin and toward holiness. We see Paul echo the same stuff in the pastoral epistles when he's talking to Timothy and to Titus. We also see that good spiritual leaders are guardians of the truth. They defend the integrity of God's word. And in turn, because they're defending the integrity of God's word, they're gonna proclaim and speak the word of God with faithfulness and boldness. But the most important thing that we see that that he mentions here about what good spiritual leaders do and how they live their lives, it's that God's design for spiritual leaders is that they bring honor and glory to his name. They glorify him. They stand in awe of him. Paul Tripp uh, wrote a really helpful book that was entitled, Awe. And in it, he has this chapter about awe in ministry and essentially what awe for spiritual leaders is. And he says this, he says, so I know that in ministry, what I'm gonna be doing is preaching, teaching, and encouraging people who are awe-forgetful, who are awe-discouraged, awe-empty, awe-deceived, awe-seduced, awe-kidnapped, and awe-weary. And my job is to give them eyes to see the awesome glory of God. His glorious grace, wisdom, power, faithfulness, sovereignty, patience, kindness, mercy, and love. And for context, in the first couple chapters of the book, what he's been doing is been giving this picture of how every human being is created with this innate desire to be in awe of things because we were made to be in awe of God. But because we live in a broken world and we live in a fallen world, we are automatically drawn away to things and in awe of things that are just less than God. Our attention is captured by and seduced by the things of this world that may be good. We stand in awe of those and what Malachi is saying, Is that the priests, spiritual leaders, are meant to stand between God and the people and have such an awe of God, of who God is, that they then teach and preach and lead the people of God toward an awful worship of him. Pastors, ministry leaders, especially here in the text, these priests, they're meant to point God, or people, to the awe of God. And so we see the same thing in the New Testament. For elders and in principle, for every believer who's in the position of leadership, we're we're meant to be disciple makers. And therefore, we're meant to be people who stand in awe of God and point others to the awe of God. So this is what God's intention for good spiritual leadership looks like, a life of integrity, A life that's guarding the truth, proclaiming the truth with boldness. And all of that is made possible when those in leadership are standing in awe of God and who He is and pointing others to that. However, after reading our text tonight, what we're reading in here is that because the priest in Malachi's day had not lived up to God's design for them as leaders, What they had was an awe problem, and therefore the people had an awe problem. And so the second thing we need to see is, how does God respond to the faithlessness of leaders? When leaders are faithless, what is God's response? It's that question we asked earlier. And so, as we consider the context of this passage, that the people had been bringing these subprime offerings and the priests, they had taken those offerings and they had offered them as sacrifices to God, we begin to notice that God takes the blame for the burnt offerings and he places it on the priest, not on the people who had brought the offerings. The brunt of the blame falls on the priest. And so, I mean, I'm kind of wondering why. But like, why are they responsible for other people's sin? Like, aren't the people responsible for the sacrifices they bring? And the priests aren't all the way in like the northern part of the country, like bringing these sacrifices down to Jerusalem? And yeah, the people are responsible for the sacrifices that they bring. Aren't the people the ones that are responsible for whether their heart's captivated by God or captivated by sin? Well, yeah, no one is responsible for your sin other than you. You're the sinner who does it. So why are the priests being held responsible for the people's wayward hearts? Well, think back to those four characteristics we just mentioned a moment ago of good spiritual leadership. God's intention for his priests was that they live with integrity, that they guard the truth, that they speak truth with boldness, they live in awe of his glory and point others to it. Yet what we see in verse eight is that the priests have not been doing this. We're told they've corrupted the covenant. They've caused many to stumble by their instruction. Instead of being the men of God who due to their proximity to the presence of God, because he's their portion, he's their inheritance, Leading the people in right worship, leading the people to awe, these men have become stubborn in disobedience, and they showed this total disregard for the law and the promises of God. And so whether by neglect or by the fear of man, what they've been doing is is showing partiality in their teaching. In other words, they're being selective about the things in the law that they're holding the people to. They're being selective about the things that they say. Well, yeah, this is a big deal, but yeah, this really isn't that big of a deal. So, what if your lamb has some spots on it and the one that you left at home was without blemish? Like, it's okay. Not a big deal. And God's saying he's had enough. And so, how do the people get away with bringing polluted offerings in the first place? The priests are accepting them, they're not guarding the truth. And so let's look again at verses one through three, and so we can see how God is gonna respond to these faithless leaders. And we'll look at verse nine right after this. He says, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I'll send the curse upon you, and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I'll rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And then down in verse 9. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. God's response to the priest here in Malachi 2 is twofold. He's gracious and he's just. He calls them on their sin. He gives them this ample opportunity to see their wickedness, to own it, and to repent. It's gracious because he wants them to listen, he wants them to take it to heart. And he also knows that they aren't, that they have not been listening, though they've been warned. They persist in sin. And God, gracious and merciful as He is, He's also going to be just. And so, if they fail to take His instruction and take it to heart, they fail to have their hearts turned toward Him with all their affections, He says He's going to curse their blessings. He goes as far as to say He's going to take the dung of their offerings and spread it on their faces. So what's God saying here? And what's that that mean? Like, is he really gonna come down and like grab some sheep manure and rub it on their face? Like, is that what he's planning on doing? What he's saying is that unless they repent, he's gonna take their ministry that's supposed to be this pleasing aroma to the Lord that's supposed to bring the people into this right standing with God as the priest offer the sacrifices, and he's going to take the dung from those offerings, he's going to wipe it on their face, and their ministry is going to stink. The people are going to know that it stinks. What's supposed to be a pleasing aroma to God is going to begin to be filled with a stench. Instead of their sacrifices and their worship coming before him like a pleasing aroma, the stench of their sin is going to be front and center, I don't know if you've ever spent any time on a working farm. My my parents have a farm in South Arkansas, and back in April, we got to go and hang out with them for a few days and visit them. And they got cows and chickens and goats and some pigs, and uh, just a lot of animals there. And we got to go, and and on one morning, like right after we got there, my mom's like, hey, hey, get up. Um, I need you to come and help me out, put your work boots on. Um, We got a cow in the barn who's sick, and we need you to help us stand her up, because uh, we just don't know if she's gonna make it if she doesn't get up and start moving. And so we went out into the, the pen and we got into the barn and, and opened the stall and went in and she had been in the stall for about seven days and hadn't moved. She'd been eating a little bit. Now, when, when you step onto a farm and you step out of your car, you immediately notice that you are no longer standing in the city. Like for all the things that hit your nostrils when you're standing in the city that may not be pleasant, it's not the same as when you step out into a farm that's filled with livestock. Like there's just, just we could say an aroma that fills your nostrils when you, when you step out and, and after a few moments, though it's there, it begins to go away because you just kind of fade in with everything else because you're out in the open. It is completely different to step into a barn stall that has been closed with a sick cow for seven days. And if you are not prepared, your gag-free reflex will be triggered. Luckily, mine was not. I was aware of what I was stepping into. But it is different. It's not the same. And listen, if that picture in your mind begins to disgust you even a little, then you're starting to grasp what God is saying about the failure of the priest here. Faithless leaders who remain unrepentant bear the stench of sin and faithlessness. And maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe at some point you found yourself in a place where the the ministry that you were a part of, that you saw, began to go off the rails like this. And you might not have seen it until after things began to come out, but you could smell it. There was a stench. There was something that was there. God was beginning to make what was happening there stink And even if you haven't personally experienced this kind of spiritual leader faithlessness directly, it would be really hard for you to have been in the American church for the past few years and not begin to notice some things that have happened. Like American evangelicalism over the past five to seven years has been rocked by some pretty massive leadership failures. And off the top of my head, and I, and I actually sat, and the number kept growing, I can think of about 12 high-profile ministers, men who 10 years ago we would have said were faithful, who have completely and totally shipwrecked their faith and their ministries, most of whom have remained unrepentant. Things just completely imploded. And some of these men were caught in sexual sin. A large portion were found to be spiritually abusive. I mean, that was a big one. Leading their churches with an iron fist, crushing those who got in their way. And if, if you consider the number of abuse cover-ups that have happened, the list could just grow and grow and grow. And, and for every high-profile pastor who has been exposed and who we've maybe seen a news article about, Listen, there are dozens of other men who have let sin run rampant and their faithlessness has impacted hundreds, thousands of people. They shipwrecked their faith. Listen, diagnosing the problem would be unfruitful and it's near impossible. It's, It's not what this space is for. But we need to acknowledge that it's here. You may even have some situation in mind. Perhaps maybe you've lived through a leadership failure where a leader fell into sin, and when you consider it, the stench is like a musty barn stall. When leaders, specifically elders and pastors today, fail to live up to God's call on their lives, what does God do? What hope do we have for things to be made right, And I think our text, it gives us a great picture of God's response. It's the same today as it was to the priests then. God first calls them to repentance. But the reality is every leader is going to fail in some way. Every leader is going to sin because there's no one who is beyond in their sanctification to the point where they're not going to. And so what matters is what happens when sin is revealed. Like, Where is their heart going to turn is it going to turn inward or is it going to turn toward God? If only the priest in Malachi's day had remembered David's cry that God doesn't care about the blood of bulls and goats. It's a broken and a contrite heart that he's not going to turn away. And repentance removes the stench of sin through the work of Christ then and now. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that ministry continues not all sins are equal in their severity sometimes sometimes the consequence of sin may be the end of ministry but there is still grace for repentance it is better to turn to christ in repentance and faith than to continue until the stench becomes unbearable And so we're reminded of what James says to anyone who would dare to become a leader, who would dare to step into a role like this one. He says, my brothers, not many of you should become teachers. For you know that those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. And part of that strictness is consequential. There are consequences to sin. Sin. And so first we see that God offers forgiveness to repentant leaders, but what if they refuse to repent? We've seen that. And God takes note. He takes note and he brings justice. Notice all the covenantal language that he uses here to rebuke rebuke the priest in our text. They failed to keep the covenant. and, And what's God's response to unrepentant covenant breaking? Exodus 34 shows us, God declares to Moses as, as Moses is hiding in the cleft of the rock and God walks past, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and oftentimes it's where we stop because it's awesome and it's so great. But the next sentence is equally good news but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the rebuke in our text tonight echoes this. When God says, indeed, I've cursed your offerings because you don't lay it to heart. Behold, I'll rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you'll be taken away with it. We don't need to brush over this. Because I think here is a profound gospel truth for us. God is just. He doesn't ignore the sin of those he's called in to leadership. There is no kind of spiritual nepotism taking place here. His wrath burns against those he's called to leadership who fail to repent just as it does to anyone else. It's either absorbed in the cross of Jesus Christ or it's poured out on their heads. But God is going to deal justly. And there may be someone here who's been deeply wounded by the failure of a leader, of an elder, or someone else in ministry. And statistically speaking, if that's the case, the chance is that that person has not been held to account. And so we can't brush over this. God will deal in truth and justice. Justice. What did Jesus say to the disciples when they tried to keep the children from coming to them? He said, listen, if anyone causes any of these little ones to stumble, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be cast into the sea. God cares for you. If you've been hurt, if you've been harmed in some way, and maybe some previous church experience and maybe no one's been held account god sees and he will act with justice so however as much hope as we have for god to deal justly tonight there's an even more beautiful hope that we have to look at when earthly leaders fail us and this is the third last thing that we need to see tonight we have our hope in a true and better high priest I said earlier that for every high-profile ministry scandal of the last half decade plus, there's probably more than a dozen similar stories that have never hit the front page. And this is true of any number of heartbreaking things uh, in, in a broken world, but, but I think it's important for us to see here the phenomenon of leadership failure. It's not an isolated event. It's not something unique to one church or denomination, network or leader. It, it isn't just a mega church or megachurch pastor problem. The landscape is riddled with the corpses of ministries whose leaders have failed in a variety of ways. And the reality is this can just be really discouraging. It can be super discouraging. I, I, I know of several people who, who were so discouraged that they've, they've stepped into the space where they're saying, I'm, I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm not gonna continue to, I, I don't know if I wanna continue following Jesus because if, if the people who are supposed to be the closest to the presence of God and lead me to the awe of God can walk and live in this such a way, I, what hope is there for me? It can be discouraging. It can be discouraging for me. And I'm aspiring to be what these guys were. It's my hope. It's it's what I feel God's called me to. And so it's discouraging to look, to see people I've gleaned from fall so hard. And that discouraging picture is why tonight I am so thankful for the fact that you and I have a leader, have a high priest who, though tempted with faithlessness, remained faithful. Who, unlike the priest in Malachi 2 and the priest about Israel's history, actually upheld the covenant. True instruction was in his mouth, no wrong was found on his lips. He walked in peace and uprightness and turned many from iniquity. And so, in Hebrews 4, the author reminds us that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Where is our hope tonight when leaders fail? When sin corrupts and destroys, where is our hope? When mentors let us down and those we've trusted proved to be untrustworthy. And it's right here. It's in the God of the promise that we've been talking about in this series. Malachi is pointing us not to the priest of his day. He's pointing us forward to a day when the covenant will truly be upheld in a way that Israel's priest had never been able to do. Never. Never. Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, is the one who took the gold from the Israelites on their way out of Egypt, threw it in a fire, and said a calf came out for them to worship. His sons were consumed with fire after they tried to offer this this unauthorized worship to the Lord. Go a few centuries later, right before David, with Eli, the priest, when Samuel came onto the scene, He leaves his sons unchecked as they're stealing from the people and sleeping with women at the entrance to the tabernacle. On and on and on. Up into the text that we're reading today, we can see the priest of Israel failed. Yet there is a great high priest who, unlike the others, didn't fail. But like the others and like us, was tempted with sin, yet overcame. The only one to live with full integrity. The only one to live with true instruction. Whose words are the very words of life. The only one who is faithful and true. The only one who so glorified God. Had such an awe of the Father that God looks at him. He says, at your name, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that you are Lord. Jesus is the true and better Levi. He's the true and better high priest. He's the true and better leader. He's the true and better elder. And that's good news. Or at least it should be. And we can look at our text and see what God has planned true spiritual leaders and and then we can see in Hebrews that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's plans for the priesthood however I know it's possible tonight that for some of us we we see this in the text and we hear that Jesus is the true and better priest pastor elder leader and, and even still our hearts recoil because maybe you've been deeply hurt Maybe someone in leadership over you at some point has hurt you, and it's just hard to trust that this is true. It's hard to believe that that Jesus, anyone with that kind of power, won't abuse it. Or if he truly has that kind of power, why didn't he stop it? That's why Hebrews 4 is so important in verse 15. The author says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In our lowest moments, in the moments where we're the most broken, we can know that Jesus has suffered. He suffered the abuse from spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders in his day were constantly trying to find fault in him. And when they couldn't, they falsely accuse him. And they have him arrested and beaten. And they have an opportunity for him to be let go. And the spiritual leaders of the day the priest. They're standing among the crowd and they're the ones riling them up to chant for his blood. If you've been hurt, Jesus knows what it's like. Whatever you faced, you can trust Jesus because he's faced it and more. Pastor Dane Orland says it like this, and I think this is so helpful. He says that sorrow. It feels so isolating and so unique. It was endured by him in the past. And get this, it's now shouldered by him in the present. It's not 2,000 years ago that Jesus can sympathize and understand. It's now. It's imminent. It's here. He shoulders your burden. He's able to sympathize with you in your weakness and brokenness, and he'll step into it with you. One final word, and then we're going to close to any who would aspire to to spiritual leadership, this is why James issues the warning to teachers. Spiritual leadership carries with it the innate risk that your sinfulness is going to outstrip your sanctification. If we consider those high-profile leadership failures that we mentioned earlier, by and large, that's what happened. Sinfulness has outstripped sanctification. Gifting is far greater than the character that had been formed it's the same in the countless others. If the Lord would be so gracious as to call you into some kind of spiritual leadership, then the most important thing that you can learn is not more theology. It's not how to write a sermon. It's not even how to share the gospel. And those are important. But the first and foremost thing that needs to be shaped and molded in you is your character. By the power of the Spirit, and the wisdom of the leaders who have humbly walked before you. So here's our hope tonight in our text as it points us toward the God of the promise, toward the true and better high priest. If you've been hurt by a spiritual leader, though it may be hard, nearly impossible to trust any earthly leader right now, listen, you can trust Jesus. And if the Lord's drawing you toward leadership, though it's a dangerous calling, Know that if he calls you, he can and he will prepare your heart if you'll come to him in humility. So tonight, let's fix our eyes on the true and better priest, the one who can sympathize with us in our weakness and comfort us in all of our pain. Would you pray with me this evening?